But today, first of all, um, right now, let's pray for somebody. Right now, Pastor Paul is in Racine filling in. Our sister church in Racine, their pastor and his wife um, are on sabbatical. And they don't have any other staff. And so we offered to them that we would do some of their fill-in for them. So Pastor Paul is right now, right now preaching at Racine Assembly of God. Wouldn't it be great for us to pray right now for Pastor Paul in that church? So Father, right now we just lift up Pastor Paul and uh, that entire congregation. And Lord, we pray this. We pray that you would stir up the gifts that you put within Pastor Paul and that as he goes down there and ministers to that congregation, that Lord, you would literally speak right through him to that church and that they would experience you in a very tangible way, and that, Lord, lives would be changed, people would come to know you, um, marriages would be brought back together, all divine things that you can do on a Sunday morning in church, and we pray that you would do those great things through him today. Lord, we also pray for those same things that happen today as we look into your word, that you would, that you would just change us and challenge us and form our thinking as we, as we look into your word. And Lord, we also want to pray for Pastor Mitch and Amy, who are off on sabbatical from our church. Um, help them to be rested. Help Pastor Mitch to get restored. Um, and just, just from all he pours out all the time, give him a great rest. And so, Lord, now today, we just want to hear from you. Help us hear from you through your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You ready to look into the Word of God together? All right. So today, we'll get to where we're going to look in a little while, but today we're going to continue on with a series that we began two weeks ago. We did something, we had a series and then we had a missionary. And so it kind of interrupted it, but we began a series two weeks ago, Pastor Paul started it, and it is about the patriarchs of the church. It's pretty much covering all of Genesis um, without two main characters. Two main characters from Genesis we're not covering would be God, <laughs> in the beginning God, because we figured we're going to cover God through the whole thing, and, and uh, Noah. But we wanted to look at the patriarchs. The whole rest of the book of Genesis is about these um, four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They're the main characters of the book of Genesis. We're basically going to cover the whole book of Genesis over the next number of weeks, all the main things of that book. And what we're going to find out is that as we look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we call them the patriarchs. They're the ones that the, that the church that we live in today, the faith that we have today, is literally built upon their life story. That God selected Abraham and then his lineage to build the nation of Israel. And from that nation, and Pastor Paul talked about this two weeks ago, from that nation then um, comes Jesus. And because of Jesus... We get to be grafted into the body of Christ, and we become one in the kingdom with, with Jesus. And so it all starts with these four men, father to son to son to son. And what we're going to find about them, and see, here's the deal. So we always do this stuff. We, have to try, we, we try to be somewhat creative at times, and I'm not the most creative guy, but we're trying to find a title for it. And, and we talked about something I'm going to say in a second, but then I had a, a different idea. That was a brilliant, I had, a, a, I had an idea once. And I said, let's title it Walking with Giants. And then Christine reminded me that we were looking at the fact that these are just ordinary people. 
And I said, oh, but the title's so good. And, uh, but she said, but it didn't fit with what we're looking at. Because here's what we're going to find as we look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They're just normal people. They make mistakes. Anybody ever make a mistake? Like, like break your hand? Uh, make mistakes? We, do, we make mistakes all the time. We make bad decisions all the time. And, and as we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're going to see they made, they made really good decisions to follow God. They made really bad decisions to lie about things and to try to circumvent God's plan and their own, taking things in their own hands. So we find they're just ordinary people that serve an extraordinary God. And this is really important for us to grasp as we, as we do this whole series because some of you in here are probably extraordinary in some ways. Some of you think you're extraordinary in some ways, and other people around you think you're not as extraordinary as you think. Like, I think I'm an extraordinary singer. And, uh, but for some reason, Suzanne's never let me on the worship team because it's an illusion in my mind. But, but here's the deal. Um, some of you probably are extraordinary in some ways, but most of us, starting with me, are just rather ordinary, average people. It's okay to be average. It's where most of us are. We're average, ordinary people. These guys we're going to look at were average, ordinary people. What we're going to see over the next couple of months, actually, is that God did and still does extraordinary things through very ordinary people. Because here's the deal, friends. It's all about God. It's all about God's power. It's all about God's ability. It's all about God's wisdom. God is the hero of our story. We're not the hero. It's all about God. And as we take a look at the patriarchs, we are um, beginning with this first four weeks, we're going to look at Abraham. And Pastor Paul started by looking at the faith of Abraham last week. Now today we're going to look at this ordinary guy named Abraham. And we're going to look at another thing that we can learn from the life of Abraham. And I believe this, because we coordinate some of the things we do, worship the things, but we didn't coordinate at all the comments that Suzanne made at the end with what I was going to talk about today. And, but she talked about what we're going to talk about today is this, that God, with God, because God's a hero of the story, that nothing is too difficult for God. That's what we're going to find out today, that nothing is too difficult for God. And let me give you a brief overview of a part of Abraham's life that we can find the reality, the truth of the fact that nothing is too difficult for God. Now, so some of you, you say, well, I know the story of Abraham and Sarah well. Well, some of you don't. So let me give you, back again, from Genesis, and we'll read parts of it in a few minutes. But let me give you kind of an overview of, for, for a few minutes of the story we're going to look at that this shows the reality that nothing's hard, too hard for God. So we have this guy named Abraham that Pastor Paul introduced two weeks ago. Abraham is going to be, he's the guy that God chose who's going to, he's going to do all his work through. He's going to reveal himself to humanity through Abraham and his, and his family, which becomes a nation of Israel. And so we have Abraham, and he has a wife named Sarah. At this point, we're going to look at, they're actually called Abram and Sarai. They haven't changed their names yet to, to indicate some things that are going to happen in their lives. But Abraham and Sarah were getting old, and they had an issue. They didn't have any children. God, it says in the text, had blessed them greatly. It said they had all kinds of gold and silver and cattle and sheep and servants. They had all this money, but they didn't have a child to inherit it all. 
someone to keep the family line going. And that's what they were hoping for. The family line was going to keep on going. Early in their lives, God had promised Abraham that he would make this great nation out of him, and they would do it in this area they called the promised land. Well, now they were, Abraham is, he's old and he's in the promised land, but it seems like the other part, the most important part of the promise isn't going to come true. They don't have a child. They can't pass it on. How can God build a nation when they have no children? Then one day Abraham has a vision. I want us to look at it today. And you know what? Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I watched a great, I think Suzanne posted it in the middle of the night. She never sleeps. So I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. She's not in bed. I walked downstairs, lights on. She's sitting in a chair with her Bible reading. I'm like, what are you doing? We have church in the morning. She said, I couldn't sleep. So I'm just reading my Bible and praying for all of, all of us. And uh, you posted stuff in the middle of the night because I looked at it this morning. And, um, and it was, a, it was a, a guy talking, a young father talking about how he'd always do his devotions, sitting on his couch with his phone. Did anybody see this? Suzanne posted it. You see her on Facebook? Look at her Facebook thing today. And um, he's saying the kids always saw him sitting on a reading on his couch, and it dawned on him, they just think he's surfing the internet. So he switched and began to take his every day and sit with his Bible and read his Bible and his journal. And one day his little boy said to him, Dad, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing in my journal the things that I feel like God is speaking to me from from the Bible. And a little while later, a few weeks later, he he said, I do it every day. I sit in the same couch in the same place every day, same time. And his little son came out with his Bible and his journal and sat in his spot on, on his chair and began to read his Bible and take notes. And the guy said, I didn't realize the message I was sending when I was reading my Bible on my phone. Now, I'm not anti-Bible phone, but I'm saying there's some positive things you can teach and you can learn by actually using your real Bible so your kids realize you're actually looking at the Word of God and not Netflix or something else, right? So grab your Bible if you have it. Power up your phone. Now you're all afraid to get your phones out. It's okay. Get your phones out. Thank you, Debbie. Get your phones out. And um, open it right at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, first book of the Bible, Right in the beginning thing, Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to see about the day that Abraham, this guy we've been talking about, Abraham and Sarah, who don't have a son but have all this riches, and God's promised them that they're going to have a family, but it's not happening. What's God say? So this what happens in Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. Read the first six verses. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, that's Abraham, it's the same guy, in a vision saying... Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? It's one one of the men who work for him. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed, Abraham believed in the word of the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So what happens here? They don't have an heir. He's saying, God, what's going to happen? And he has this vision from God. And God tells him that he will have an heir, and his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it says this, 
God spoke to him, and Abraham believed it. And God said, I'm going to do it because you believe it. His reckoning was righteousness. But what happens? Nine months pass by. No child. In fact, years pass by and no child. So Sarah, his wife, comes up with a brilliant plan. She said, I know what I'll do. I'll give my maid, in a different culture then, she's got a servant girl maid um, named Hagar. I'll give my maid Hagar to Abraham as another wife so they can have a child together. Ladies, would any of you ever think of doing such a thing? No. But Sarah, I'm gonna, I got a plan. So she says, here, take my maid and have a baby with her. And guess what? It worked. Hagar had a son, and his name is Ishmael, but things didn't go so well. Sarah, all of a sudden, Hagar has a baby, Ishmael. Now imagine this. Hagar is the servant of, of Sarah, and she gives her to her husband. She's been her servant, and she has the baby, and now she's going, ha ha, I have a baby, I have a son, I'm special. And Sarah gets mad because now she's not treating her with respect anymore. So Sarah begins to complain to Abraham, and Abraham wimps out and says, well, just do whatever with, whatever you want. Now, here's again, ordinary people, extraordinary God. Guess what she does? You know, she's kind and loving, a, a leader, a founder of the church world. What does she do? She sends him out in the desert to die. She says, okay, I can do whatever I want. Sends the baby and his mother, Ishmael and Hagar, out in the wilderness to die. Fortunately, the Lord intervenes, finds Hagar, and sends her back to Abraham and Sarah. Thirteen years then pass. Abraham is now 99 years old. And Sarah is now 89 years old. All of a sudden, three men, who are really three angels, come and meet. They they see Abraham, and they come, and they, they talk to him, and they give him an incredible prophecy, an incredible promise. Let's look at that. Turning your Bible to the promise. Just a couple pages over Genesis 18, starting in verse 9. Look at this promise. So 13 years later, God had given him a vision. God had told him, even before that, I'm going to give you this nation out of you. Then God gives him a vision, and now no baby 13 years, and now he has these three men come up to him and get this prophecy to him. In Genesis 18, starting in verse 9, it says, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, They're in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being so old? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And at that point time, at, this, at, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Look at that promise, that prophecy. In one year, 90-year-old Sarah will have a son. It's so absurd It's so impossible 
that Sarah sits in her tent and she laughs at the absurdity of what the angels are prophesying to Abraham because it's absolutely impossible. But we need to notice something here. I want you to notice what the angels say in the prophecy right in the middle of it, of this promise that they spoke to Abraham and to Sarah. They speak these words. And these are the words God wants to to grip our heart with today. And it's this. It's a question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? They wanted Abraham and Sarah to learn something. They want God wants us to learn something today here from this story and in our lives is that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Say, say, say nothing with me. Nothing. Nothing. Not almost nothing. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. One year later, 90-year-old Sarah, 100-year-old Abraham have a baby boy. And guess what they name him? You know what? What? Isaac. What's it mean? Laughter. They name him laughter. If you were 90-year-old ladies and you had a baby, you'd probably name your child laughter too. So I said, it's laughter. It's like, this is impossible. It's laughter. They had their heir, the one who would continue the family line that, friends, still exists today in the Jewish people. Friends, nothing. If you don't believe it's true, that anything's impossible, God, look at, just go to Mequon. Okay, whereas all kinds of people who are biological Jewish and say that is evidence of this promise from thousands and thousands of years ago that says nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And friends, this is what I want to believe. That's I believe God wants to grip our hearts with today is this truth as we're going forward with him, as we're living our lives with him, that nothing, absolutely nothing is too difficult for God. I believe God wants to rekindle in your hearts today the idea that the things that he's promised you are still true and his word is true and that nothing that he says will come true is too difficult for him to bring to pass. That promise, friends, that God gave you and you know it was God that spoke it to you, that seems like it's never going to happen. God wants you to know today that nothing is too difficult for him, and he wants to rekindle your faith today. And I believe he wants to do something else today as he's rekindling your faith. He wants you to understand that he is, he is accomplishing something in your life even if you don't see the promise that you know he gave you being fulfilled in the way you thought it would be fulfilled and that you realize there's this big gap of time between when God gives a promise and when a promise is fulfilled. That there's a, there's a gap and there's, there's a reason oftentimes for that gap of time. And friends, it's so important for us to understand it because if you don't understand that often God is a gap of time, you will get discouraged in the gap. And we need to understand that today. And I'll tell you this. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay? We'll get to explaining the gap in a minute. But I want to explain something first. I want to deal with something first. And I hesitated to add this to my sermon, but I felt compelled to do it today. 
I've wrestled with how I should deal with the topic I want to deal with right now. Before we deal with the promise that God can do anything and he gives a promise and he fulfills a promise, there's a gap of time. There's something we need to understand that's even more foundational before we can deal with the gap of time. And, I, and I, I, I'm hesitant because what I'm here today to do, I believe God wants to build your faith and not in any way crush your faith. But in order for you to understand this properly, I have to help you to understand that there is a difference between a promise from God and biblical principles. There's a difference between a promise from God that he fulfills and biblical principles and that we need to know there's a difference. See, in, in the story, Abraham had a promise from God. God spoke to him and said, you will have an heir. And then later that promise was clarified. Not only will you have an heir, you will have a son with Sarah, even though she's 90 and you're 100. You will have this, a specific promise to Abraham. And friends, Scripture has promises. Some of the promises in Scripture are unconditional. Things like this. Jesus promised that one day he will return. Jesus said, I'm going away and I'm coming back. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he's coming back one day. It's a promise from Jesus that he's made. It's unconditional. He's going to do it. Other unconditional promises. Jesus promised to his followers that as he went away, he is preparing an eternal home for his followers. I don't have to do anything about it. He said he's doing it. He's going away and he's preparing a home and he's going to bring us, come back for us and bring us to it someday. There are unconditional promises. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, some of the scripture also has conditional promises. It's promises like this, that if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe that those who believe in him will not perish, will have everlasting life. It's a conditional promise. He said, if you believe, you you will be saved. Other conditional promises, the book of James gives a conditional promise that says, if you ask for wisdom and you don't doubt, and that means double-minded, it means that you're all in with Jesus. You're not half in the world and half, out, half, half in with Jesus, half out with Jesus. That's what it really means. If you're all in with Jesus and you ask for wisdom, he will give you wisdom. It's a conditional promise. If you're all in with Jesus, you're, walk, you're tracking with him, you ask for wisdom. If you ask, he will then give you wisdom. It's a conditional promise. They are promises from God. So scripture has promises in it. Also, there's promises from God that aren't, that will they'll line up with Scripture, but they're not necessarily found in chapter and verse. For instance, that's what we see here with Abraham. God speaks to Abraham through visions, through angels, and he gives him a promise. You will have a son. God gives him a promise. <clears throat> I was thinking about this, and Suzanne and I were talking about it. I'm trying to say, what are promises that God ever gave to us? And we were talking about how one time in our lives... We had planted a church, pastored it for 10 years. We'd started it from scratch. It was a great church. It was thriving. It was growing. It was happy. And it was, it was very successful. And we felt like God told us to leave, plant another church with zero financial support. Plant another church with no money. Zero. No money. And, but we thought we were supposed to do it. Everybody thought we were Christians. Our family was mad at us. We had Josh and Brett were little kids. And we thought, how are we going to do this? We had no idea, but we had this promise. We had this this absolute deep-seated promise in our souls that God asked us to do it, and he would provide. And I will tell you, 
the most miraculous provisions of my life took place as a direct result of that um, walk of obedience, walking in that promise. But it was a promise from God. It was based on Scripture, but it was specific for us in that situation. We knew we had heard the promise of God by the Holy Spirit. So friends, there are promises, things we stand on, knowing that God has spoken about a situation. Friends, these are promises. So there's promises. But there's something else all over in Scripture. Principles. There are principles. There are, there are general guidelines that, that God says. These are truths, but they're not absolute promises. They're the general way it works, but it's not a direct promise from God. And the Scripture is full of them. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs is primarily a book of principles. It's principles to live by. They're, they're true, they're right, but they're not absolute Promises. So, like in the scriptures, in a, a principle in Proverbs says, the Lord will not allow his righteous to grow hungry. And so, as a general principle, that's true. God is good to his people. He blesses his people. His, his, his abundance, I believe, rests upon us. However, there are many good Christians right now in this world who are hungry especially in parts of the world where they're being persecuted for following Jesus. And so it's a general principle that says the Lord will not allow his righteous to go hungry, but it's not an absolute promise because there are situations because of the sin of the world, reality of people, of humankind, that those principles are broken because of humanity. They break the principles. Now, an issue arises for us when we stand on principles like they are promises. And I hear it all the time in the church world. We stand on principles. We quote principles like they are promises. What if I took that previous principle from Proverbs and believed it to be a promise and then I went hungry? What would happen? I would have to conclude that God is a liar. His word is not true. Because God said the righteous will never go hungry. I go hungry. I'm walking with Jesus. Therefore, God's word's not true. Is there any other conclusion you could come to? No. It's a conclusion you would have to come to that God and God, God's not trustworthy. His word is not true. See, the friends, the issue isn't that God lied, because he doesn't lie, but it's that you took a principle to be a promise. You claimed a principle, and it's kind of a, 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 a way, a, a Christian, a Western American way of claiming Scripture, they'll say this. I claimed that promise, but it was never a promise anyways. It was a principle that you live by. Now, principles are important, and principles are to be trusted, but principles are not absolute promises, so they don't always pan out the way we think they will in our lives. And friends, knowing that keeps us from blaming God, which leads to not trusting God when things don't happen the way we think they should based on a principle. And that's why this is so important. Now, do you love me? Because now I'm going to take it to the next level. I mean it. I agonize. I talk to these, our staff. I'm like, I don't know if I should do this. But I have to because this is truth. And it's going to help you if you understand this, even though it might hurt a little bit right now, what I want to talk about. So I hesitate to take the next step, but I think I need to for all of our sake. It's this. There are 
principles that I hear people call promises all the time in the church, and they stand on them as promises. And because they stand on them as promises, they become confused and frustrated and often hurt and angry when situations at least are not right now or don't end up working out the way they had hoped for according to the principle that they have decided or somebody taught them errantly was a promise. And one of those principles, and I'm just picking this one because I hear it quoted probably the most. And some of you know where I'm going with this. One of the principles is also found in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, in chapter 22, the sixth verse, and it says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a principle. It's a principle. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's something I believe as I raised my children, I did my best to train up a child in the way he should go, believing that the general principles, when they are old, then they will not depart from it. But it is a principle, and it's not a promise. Because here's the deal, friends. Our kids have the ability to make their own choices. See, if you take this as a promise, and your child then currently or just doesn't follow Jesus, then there's only two options. Only two options. Number one option, you failed as a parent. If I do this, this will happen. It didn't happen. I failed. You did not necessarily fail as a parent. And that's why I'm saying it today. Because some of you are living in guilt today that God does not want you to have because your children, at least for now, are not walking the paths of the Lord. And you feel guilty because you look at this as a promise and you go, if I did this right, it would happen. It's not happening. I did something wrong and you're living in guilt. That's not a promise. It's a principle. It's a general guideline. So the first thing that would happen is you live in guilt which God doesn't want you to carry to live in guilt, um, and you have a wrong belief about yourself, and God doesn't want you to have that wrong belief. So that's the first thing. You, le- you live in guilt because you believe a principle is a promise. The next thing is, if it doesn't happen the way you think it's supposed to happen because you think it's a promise and it's actually a principle, you believe that God failed to keep his promise which then gives you a false narrative about God. You go, God's not trustworthy, God's a liar, and you will never believe then that God can do anything God says he's going to do. The whole intention of this sermon is to say there's nothing too difficult for God. And guess what? Reaching your kids is not too difficult. God wants to reach your kids. I'm not saying God doesn't want to, but if you're standing on it as a promise... And it's not happening right. It's messing with you. It's leading guilt on you that you shouldn't be carrying. Or it's giving you a false belief about God that's destroying your faith. And I can't in good conscience let you live like that without challenging that thinking. Because God wants you to understand. You can do your best. In any situation, other people can reject it. You can do your best as a spouse and your spouse can walk away. You can do your best. And, you know, I hesitate to say this, but... So I'll be generic. There's all kinds of families that have multiple children and mom and dad raised them the same and two of them are serving Jesus and one isn't. That says something to me. Mom and dad aren't the problem. Now, could we always do better? We can all do better. Talked about it today. Mom and dad, put your phone away, read your real Bible. Your kid might learn to read his real Bible instead of just wanting to play video games on your phone. Simple little thing. But no, we can do better. But here's the deal. If you think a promise 
is a principle is a promise. It is going to cause you problems in your walk. The truth is principles are not promises. So let's be careful to not treat them as such for, your, for the good of your own soul and for the good of your, your emotional well-being. Okay. Now I spent way more time on that than I originally planned. It was one little, one little three-word thing in my outline of my sermon outline when I was developing it, and I just had to take time with it. So let's get back to what we said we're going to look at. What were we going to look at? Remember? This is important to get us there. God gives a promise, and sometimes there's a gap of time between when he gives the promise and when it's fulfilled, the time gap. And you say, why? Friends, why wouldn't he just do it? If God gives me a promise, you know, if, if I promise to take the garbage out, sometimes there's a time gap. And it can make somebody else frustrated. Right? Why, there, why is there gaps in time? God gives a promise. And there's a gap between when he gives a promise and when it's fulfilled. Friends, this is so important to get. Because when you are in the in-between time, it's easy to lose hope if you don't realize that God is up to something in and through your situation. So why would God allow a, time of, a gap of time between giving a promise and fulfilling a promise? There's a couple reasons. Number one is this. Because he is revealing his reality to others who are watching your life situation. He is revealing your reality to others who are watching. You see, God often brings his followers, you and me, to an impossible place so that when he answers, when he fulfills a promise, there's no doubt that God is real and that God intervened. Okay, so let's think about that. The Bible shows it over and over and over that God does this for his, through his people. Think about, we read about it. I'm something, something of Moses. What's the song? I'm, I'm, what is it? I'm, I'm calling on the God of Moses who did all these things. See, that's, how I, that's why I'm not on the worship team. But something, something, I can make it sound good. Um, so, Moses at the Red Sea. Think about it. God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, let my people go, you know, Charlton Heston, let my people go. And he leads them out. They, 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 God does all the plagues. God has promised, I'll take care of you. They get out into the wilderness. They get up to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's charging in at them. Pharaoh is going to slaughter them at the banks of the Red Sea. God brings them to an impossible situation. A really interesting leadership principle. Read that story with Moses. This is what Moses says. A little sidebar. He's saying to everybody, God will see us through. You see what he says to himself? Oh, God, where are you? You've really blown it this time. You've let me all alone. So to the people, he's like, oh, I got this thing. Behind the scenes, he's like, this is a catastrophe. You know? But he gets to the edge of the Red Sea. God brings them to an impossible... God promised them, I'll take care of you, and now they're going to get slaughtered. And right at the last moment, raise up your staff, the sea splits, they go through on dry ground, Pharaoh and his armies goes, get them, go through, push, the water covers them, kills them all. Why? Because it's still talked about today that God brought them to an impossible situation in order to reveal that he's going to keep his promise, but he wouldn't be a big promise if he didn't bring them to an impossible situation first. So God brought them to a place that would reveal to all the onlookers, including themselves, hey, God is really real and he keeps his promises. How about the story of Daniel and the lion's den? Daniel's just doing what God told him to do. He's praying three times a day. They want to see 
his, his uh, people who are jealous of him want to see him just destroyed, so they make a rule, law of the Medes and the Persians, that you can't pray to anybody but the king. Daniel still prays to God. They'd say, oh, God, I sentence him to, to his punishment. The punishment is what? There's a great big pit. We can't even imagine this. We think the world's insane now. They had pits full of lions that they threw people into. I mean, they really did. Big pits with a lid on it and lions. And they didn't like you. They threw you in the pit and you got eaten. And they talk, take Daniel and they brought him into the pit to get eaten. What happens? The next day the king comes to the, to the gate of the, the lion's den. What's he say? Daniel, Daniel, did your God help you? Daniel says, hey, don't worry about it. I'm fine. Get me out of here. They get Daniel out of the lion's den. What's the king do to the people who had him thrown in the lion's den? Throw him in a pit. <clears throat> the lions eat him. Why would God do that? Why would God bring Daniel to this impossible? He said he's going to take care of him. He's one of his leaders. He's, he's standing in an unrighteous culture, and he's serving God, and he gets thrown into a lion's den. Why would God do that? Because it says, the king said, surely the God of Daniel is a po- the most powerful God. Everybody realized. But if he didn't bring him to that, if it was an in-between time, didn't bring him to a time of impossibility, then they wouldn't see God. How about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Right? The three Hebrew children who they're taken off into slavery. They, they're wise, so they get lead, raised up to, to leadership. And then one day the king builds a gigantic statue and says, it's a statue of me. Bow down and worship. And they play the instruments and everybody bows down. And somebody goes, hey, those three guys over there, those Hebrews, they're not bowing down. Okay, play the music again. Bow down, guys. We can't do that. We're not supposed to bow down to anybody but God. They take him to a furnace. They said, heat the furnace up seven times hotter than it's ever been before. They heat it up. It's so hot that the, that the servants, the soldiers that take him up to throw him in the furnace, die because of the heat. They throw the three guys in there. And what does the king say? Hey, how many guys did we throw in there? Uh, three. I see four, and one looks like the son of a god. They say, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, Bednego, come out here once. They come walking out of the fire. And they go, your clothes doesn't even smell like smoke. And what does the king say? The same thing with Daniel. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the God to be worshipped. He realizes that he's real. Why? God had to have this gap where everything got bad before he did it. One more. How about Gideon and his army of 300? It's not smart to have like tens of thousands of soldiers who are already outnumbered. And then God says, I tell you what, here, the only ones I want to fight are the ones who go to the water and drink a certain way. And out of the 22,000 that were there, first of all, I said, tens of thousands went home. If you're afraid, go home. I'd go home. (laughs) They were outnumbered. I'm going home. Then the next ones, 22,000, they don't drink right. Go home. You left with 300. Everybody knows they're going to go to battle next day, and they're going to get completely annihilated. But God fights for them. And God kills the enemy army, and Gideon and his 300 defeat the whole thing um, in, you know, with torches and pitchers. You know? and, uh, and God wins. Why? Because they said, Gideon's God. We still talk about it today, you know, four or 5,000 years later, we still talk about it. Gideon's God came through at the ninth hour, at the 11th hour. <laughs> God is often a gap of time. 
and it gets bad in the middle between when God makes a promise and when it's fulfilled. It gets bad and you go, it's impossible. It can't help it. See, God will often let a situation become impossible before intervening and doing the miracle, fulfilling a promise, so that people will see him through it. And you say, why? Because he wants everyone to know him and have an opportunity to follow him. He wants people to have the chance to know him. So he will take you and me. See, this we come, we come to Jesus. We pray this prayer. We sing songs. Oh, God, I'm all yours. I surrender it all to you, God. Anything you want, you can have from me, God. And then God asks for something. You go, oh, wait a minute. I didn't mean it. We come to Christ. We say, I'm yours. Suzanne referenced it. We're living sacrifices. That's the Christian walk. The Christian walk isn't believing a couple of theological points and going to church. The Christian walk is saying, I'm not God. He's God. I follow him and I do whatever he tells me to do because he's God. And as I do, I live in the, I live in the abundant protection of his grace, of his kingdom. And I'm, I'm with him now and I will be for eternity. That's being a Christian. So when God says to me, who I've said, you know, you're all I need. And he's going, okay, if I'm all you need, then guess what? I'm going to throw you in a lion's den. Okay. It's not so fun all the time, right? We don't always understand what's going on. But the fact is, if we are the one who has said, God, I'll give you everything, then sometimes he leads us into situations where it requires a lot from us so that he can reveal himself through our life situations that when he comes through, people say, oh my goodness, the God of, fill your name in the blank. Look what he did. See, this gives, if you understand that there's a purpose for your gap between the promise and fulfillment, if you understand that, you say, oh, God is revealing himself in some way that ought to onlookers. It gives purpose to you as you're going through it. So that's one of the things. There's two things. The second one is this. Another really important reason why we need to understand that there's a gap of time between the promise and the fulfillment, and it's this. Because it's the primary way or time that God helps you and me grow in Christ's likeness. That he helps us to become more mature. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and he wrote something, and some people come and say, what's the will of God for my life? Paul told you the will of God. He said it's a Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Say that again. Thessalonians, Thessalonians. Um, is that from one of the Veggie Tales? Right? You guys remember that? Um, it says, "For this is what it says to the Thessalonian church. For this is God's will, your sanctification." What's that mean? Sanctification means your development and becoming more and more like Jesus, displaying His type of life and action because of His work of transformation inside of you. God's will is for you and me to be transformed from who we are into people who are more genuinely reflecting the reality of Jesus. And friends, here is the point of it. That work of transformation, that activity of God, is mostly accomplished in difficult times, in the gap. It's mostly accomplished in times when we need to wrestle with who we are, who God is, who we are becoming, and we need to let things go in our lives in order to grab on better things from the Lord. That happens mostly in difficult times. Those transformations usually happen most in times of struggle and confusion. When we call out to God, good times we don't usually call out to God. 
But in struggle, we call out to God and we give up of ourselves and our old ways and say, God, I need to be changed. I need, I need help. And then God says, good, you're ready to grow. It happens in the gap. In between times, God gives us the opportunities to get better. So friends, I tell you this, don't despise the in-between times. A lot of you are living in between. God gave you a promise. Either it's a promise from his word that he just spoke into your heart, or, and there's a pro, or it's a promise like Abraham or the one to Suzanne and I where it was just like, I will take care of you. I don't know how. We don't know how, but God said, I'll take care of you, even though you're taking your two boys to another state, start a new church, and there's no money for it. Even though the money was promised until the day you resigned your last position, and then they pulled it out. And they said, what are you going to do now? And we said, we're going to follow God. It was a promise, deep-seated promise in our heart. And God fulfilled his promises. So don't despise it in between time. Because oftentimes that in between time is the God where, where God does the most amazing miracles. Where people see it in the miracles in your life and God provides for you in ways and you grow in ways you would never grow in good times. Now, I just got one more thing to say to you about the in-between times. And the last thing is, it's a warning. See, it's easy to get impatient when you are waiting for God to fulfill his promises to you. And in that impatience, you and I can easily take matters into our own hands and really mess things up. Anybody ever mess anything up? Getting ahead of God will mess things up in your life. Trying to do God's work on your power will get you messed up in your life. Isn't that exactly what happened to Abraham and Sarah? God promised them a son. Not only a son, God said, Abraham and Sarah, you will have a son. The two of you will have a son. And nine months went by, and then 18 months went by, and then 13 years went by, and they're old, and it's impossible, and they get tired of waiting. And so Abraham gets Hagar pregnant as a solution. Friends, that's messed up. A lot of times we do messed up stuff. Hagar was a servant of theirs. She had no say in the matter. And I was, in my opinion, they used and abused her. When we take matters in our own, own hands, a lot of times that's what happens. We use and abuse people to get what we want because we're not going to wait for God. And as a result, in their situation, Ishmael was born and he became a huge problem for them down the line. He became a problem for the nation of Israel. And if you follow the trajectory today, Ishmael is the father of all of Islam. Lots of problems. There's kind of bombs flying between Palestine and Israel, right? Right? Why is that? Ishmael. They took matters into their own hands. There's a ripple effect to taking matters into your own hands. As a result of Ishmael was born and you know, he becomes this huge problem because they did it on their own. What do we learn from them? Don't take matters into your own hands in order to fulfill the promises of God. They're God's promises. He fulfills them in his perfect timing to accomplish his perfect plan. Now, he does use us. We need to have ears to hear, eyes to see, walk in obedience. But we don't take God's matters into our own hands when he makes a promise. And we're really good at that. God, I'll solve that problem for you. You solve that problem for God, you just make more messes. You create Ishmaels who end up being problems forever for you and for your family, and for your family's family, and your family's family's family. So what's this all about today? Nothing. Say nothing. Nothing, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Absolutely 
nothing. Friends, trust him to do what only he can do in your lives. Live a life where you're listening and you live a life in the word where he's speaking to you. And when he makes a promise to you, you can fully trust him to fulfill it. There's no need, though, for you to intervene and try to fix it because you'll only mess it up. So what's God's promise that he's spoken in your heart? I believe this. I believe God today is rekindling promises that he gave you, some of you years ago. He's rekindling promises. I'm going to tell you this. Don't give up. What promises is God giving you? What is God going to speak to you now in your life that he's laid out the preparation for you? He's going to promise something to you. Are you in the in-between time right now? You know God spoke a promise. And God is at work. And you didn't know why, but now you do know why. He's, trying to, he's going to reveal himself through it. And he's going to help you to grow in Christ's likeness in the midst of it. I think today what you might need as we're talking about this and wrapping up, you just need to spend a little time sitting with the Lord and letting him renew your faith in him.